This is The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Good morning, it's John Moore. This is The Breakfast Wrap for Thursday, November 24th. We start the day with fog that gives way to a mixture of sun and cloud and a high today of 8 degrees. Here are the five things you need to know. Number one, a cyclist run down and killed at Young and St. Clair. Number two, the Ontario line cost has risen already, even before official construction begins. Number three, day one of city council in Toronto sets a negative tone. Number four, Ontario clinics are asked to work overtime. And number five, Canada's men's soccer team draws praise even after a loss. The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. 5.07 on a Thursday morning, and uh, we start with the sort of the, the greatest of tragedies um, in terms of two different stories. But uh, one of them, actually, we were reporting on yesterday morning, and now we just know more details. But you had heard there was a fatal uh, car collision, two vehicles involved in Peterborough, Ontario. And what we've learned is it's a mother, a father, and a son who were killed and you just have to wrap your mind, your head around the idea of a 14-year-old girl named Rogan who was uh, taken by helicopter to the hospital for sick kids from the accident scene and is seriously injured. And how do you, you know, wake up from something like that and then you say, well, where's my mom? Where's my dad? Where are my brother? And... Uh, all of them were killed along with another individual. The fourth victim was a 42-year-old man named Jason Smith, who was the driver of a pickup truck. We don't know the circumstances of what happened. And then I was actually on the scene yesterday of uh, another tragedy. And there seems to be some disagreement over whether or not it was a pedestrian or a cyclist. But um, the CTV reporter I was watching yesterday evening was saying that they actually pulled a wrecked bike out from under this vehicle. So I guess it's fairly easy to conclude that it was a cyclist. This happened at Young and St. Clair. And as I said, I was on the scene and what a horrible tragedy. And yet at the same time, something I found kind of touching uh, just as a small gesture was, and I guess this is actually standard practice, but the firefighters who had responded to the scene, who came from the station that I know, that I walk past, you know, two, three, four times a day where I stop in with the dog and visit, that those firefighters from 311 were on the scene and they were standing around the vehicle that had run over this individual. And as it turns out, the person died at the scene. Uh, but they were holding up these tarpaulins in an effort just to keep prying eyes and uh, lurid curiosity away. So in just a, a gesture toward an individual's dignity in what turned out to be their death, um, I found touching. But at the same time, I think we're going to have to ask a lot of questions about what happened. And obviously, an investigation is going to happen. I'm looking at a lot of the scene photographs, and it's full of all those little tiny pylons and numbers indicating evidence that police will eventually process. But there is a dedicated bike lane there. So what happened? Mind you, 
in spite of the fact there's a dedicated bike lane on Young Street that runs from Bloor to Davisville, uh, as a matter of routine, I will see people riding bikes in traffic, riding bikes on the sidewalk, riding in the, because the bike lane's on both sides of the street, riding in the wrong direction um, in, in a bike lane. So there's all kinds of things. And, you know, set that aside for a moment. That doesn't mean that a cyclist is responsible for their death. It does mean, you know, in civil court, there's always a, a shared responsibility for certain tragedies. Um, but at the same time, I cannot wrap my head around what must have happened for a motorist to not only run over somebody, but then drag them for 100 feet. You know, what is, what is going on when you run somebody over in the first place and then when you decline to stop. Mind you, this is an ongoing investigation, so we'll keep moving. Uh, interesting day yesterday at Toronto City Council. It was their first day, and we're going to process this on our show today because I honestly think that the tone was set for the next four years, and there's a few things evident. One of them is that Josh Matlow may be the new presumed leader of the opposition at Toronto City Hall. And two being, there has been plenty of speculation about whether or not Josh Matlow plans to run for mayor four years from now. I suspect he does plan to do so. And think about it for a second. Nobody got into the field this time because John Tory said, I want to run for a third term. And everybody looked at him and thought, He's, you know, he's going to be reelected and by a massive majority. And so he was. So why bother running against him? It's going to cost money. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to be a lot of useless debates, um, a lot of door knocking. And why bother? I'm going to run for city council. We'll see where we are four years from now. However, four years from now, it is going to be a completely open field. And the reason why certain individuals need to start getting themselves into the starters blocks now is imagine for a second, you're Michael Thompson, who is still, you know, awaiting trial for two allegations of sexual assault. Um, but he wants to run for mayor. Josh Matlow probably wants to run for mayor. Um, they're probably, you know, Joe Cressy, is he going to come back and want to run for mayor? Whatever. But the reason these people have to get into their armor right now is because you never know when some executive vice president at Toronto Dominion Bank or whatever decides, hey, I'm going to run. Or when some federal politician says, screw this, I'm going to run for mayor of Toronto. So you've got to start marshalling your forces really, really early. But here, Nick, if you want to throw in number 25, Josh Matlow decided at the swearing-in ceremony that this was the time to call out John Tory for embracing the powers that are now being given to him by the provincial government, the special mayoral powers. You impugned the privilege of this assembly by requesting that Premier Ford provide you undemocratic minority rule powers that are unprecedented in any democratically elected body anywhere in the world. That's, uh, that requires a degree of moxie because, you know, it's swearing in day and Josh Matlow decides to, you know, put his teeth into Mayor John Tory, who's just been reelected with 65% 
um, of the popular vote, but is not invulnerable to attack. Because in spite of the fact that John Tory has said that he doesn't plan to use the powers, what John or Josh Matlow is asserting is that he asked for them. So, you know, why would you ask for special powers if you don't intend to use them? John Tory replied in saying that he's only going to use them under special circumstances. Um, but it, it's a complicated, messy, dramatic, soap opera-worthy affair, and we're going to be there for every moment of it. Josh Matlow is going to be with us at 8.35 this morning to explain what was going on on council yesterday. Just one, and I'll dig into this a little deeper in a few minutes, of the many guests we're going to have on the show today where occasionally our show makes the news. And I think we're going to make a lot of news today. All right, time now to say good morning to John Moore. News Talk Radio 1010, see what's on his mind today. Morning, John. Good morning, George. Nice to see you back. Good to see you, too. Uh, let's start here. Canada loses its first World Cup match to world number two, Belgium. So many of us were watching yesterday. There was a real thrum in the city and probably across the entire country. A lot of people leaving work early and taking in the match, which was somewhat frustrating to watch. I don't know a great deal about soccer, so I'm not going to offer any analysis except to say uh, Bruce Arthur writes that Canada played fearless football, full of pace and flow. They lost to Belgium by a score of one nothing, but the consensus seems to be amongst those who actually understand soccer that they played very well. They did indeed. I mean, just, I, you know, I know it's measured in goals and wins, but shots for the entire game, 24 to 9 for Canada. That says a lot about their ability to play with the best of the best. So we look forward to their next games Sunday and Thursday. All right, uh, bringing them back home now. Ontario, the Ontario line, the new subway line, it's going to be built. Hey, guess what? It's going to cost a lot more, probably go over time too. Yeah, is it any surprise? I mean, almost every public project ends up way over time. You just have to think, for example, the renovation of Union Station, which was supposed to be complete by 2015 and only wrapped up this year. Lex Harvey reporting in the Toronto Star that uh, according to some contracts that have been awarded on the Ontario line, which is a new subway line, mostly subway actually, some of it will be at surface, but it's going to run from the fairgrounds to the Science Museum that already we're looking at a range of $17 billion to nineteen billion. The original price tag was 10.9. At $1 billion a kilometer, that is one heck of a fee. <laughs> it sure is. Oh, boy. Uh, this story, uh, boy, Shoppers Drug Mart, uh, they're announcing they're going to be installing mm -hmm. safes for narcotics and opioids amid a, a rise in pharma theft. These safes are fairly common in other jurisdictions, especially in the United States, and the way that they work is that they're on a time delay. So if somebody were to walk up to the counter with a gun and say, you got to give me some drugs, mm. you can just say, sorry, the safe is timed, it's going to take 10 minutes, and by the way, the cops are on their way. Uh, this is a response to the fact that we've had 110 robbery calls in pharmacies already this year. The year isn't even over. Compare that to 49 in 2021. That's shocking. And so is this story. A cyclist yeah. was struck and killed late afternoon yesterday, Young and St. Clair, and you were there. That's in my neighborhood. I was just out walking the dog, ended up on the scene. And what a tragic thing to, to take in because it was a small commercial vehicle that had run over. We presumed to be a cyclist because CTV has been reporting that there was a bicycle recovered at the scene. But the individual was killed at the scene. And people who witnessed it say that he was dragged about 100 feet after oh, uh, having been run over. So just the latest on-street 
casualty for the city of Toronto. But worth noting as well, uh, we're going to have to understand what the circumstances are here, but there are dedicated and shielded bike paths at that um, intersection. So uh, you have to wonder how this accident ended up happening in the first place. Yeah, we'll probably learn more today. Uh, John, thanks very much. We're going to have to leave mm -hmm. it there. Appreciate your time. Have a great day and a great show. That's George Lagerjanis, our friend over at CP24. Just some of the stories that uh, people are going to be talking about today. But this also happens to be the day. There, sometimes I'll be preparing for the show and I'll just think, wow, we got a lot of stuff to talk about today. A lot of information to share. A lot of things possibly to debate on the morning brief at 6.20, on the roundtables at 7.45 and 8.45. So I'll tell you what, let's press the reset button and then revisit some of those stories in just a second. When I say revisit, I mean... We'll touch on some of the things we've already talked about, but there's a bunch of other stuff. So we're back right after this. I was mentioning some of our special guests today. Bob Richardson is a frequent guest here on News Talk 1010 as an analyst and pundit, but he's also with Canada Soccer. So we figured we'd ask him for his take on yesterday's game. And I don't think this is necessarily... Remember the old commercial where the kids sitting at a table in the kitchen and mom and he are talking and she says, how'd the game go? And he says, we lost again. And then she makes him some hot chocolate and says, yeah, but you tried. And it's a sweet little moment, but I don't think that's what happened yesterday with our men's soccer team in Qatar. Everybody seems to agree that they played their lights out. And it's just a question of the vagaries of soccer where we're supposed to get excited about a game that ends one nothing, And I think actually in Qatar, and if you're a soccer person, you can confirm or deny this. I'm pretty sure we've had some nil-nil, zero-zero matches already. So for a lot of people, this is one of the reasons I like lacrosse. I mean, in lacrosse, generally a game, it's more like a volleyball score. You know, you'll have like 16 to 12 or something like that. Something happens. And as a matter of fact, I don't know if she's still goes to Toronto Rock games. I don't even know if they're still called Toronto Rock because they went to Hamilton. Now they're going to be playing somewhere else. I saw in a press release the other day. But there used to be this woman we called Dolores because every single time that the Rock scored, she would jump up out of her seat in like the 16th row, run down the staircase and bang the palms of her hands against the glass. And it would happen every single time. And obviously it would happen like a dozen, 16, 20 times during your average game. So one of the reasons why I like lacrosse. But back to soccer, it, I, I mean, I guess the reason the announcers lose their minds is because nobody ever scores. And so when they do, once in a while, you've got an example of this, Nick? This one is played downfield. It's a chance to Batshuayi! And Belgium take the lead inside the final two minutes of the first half for all of Canada's pressure. Belgium in the end go direct. There you go. So that was the one goal that was scored in yesterday's match was Belgium against Toronto. And so Toronto lost. But like I said, I don't think this is no, nobody's going to go make some cocoa for the Toronto team and hold their hands and say, well, you tried. Um, it apparently was a magnificent effort. But like I said, I'm going to lean in on the guy who actually understands this stuff. Bob Richardson will be here at 635 this morning. You're listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. 537, and with all the preoccupation over Canada's 
soccer team outing yesterday, uh, people can be perhaps forgiven for forgetting that the Toronto Argonauts won the Grey Cup last Sunday. But it'll be hard to forget today because there is a celebration going on. There's a lot of excuses this week not to go to work. Have we reached? Not yet. I think we got to get into December when you get to that point where nobody takes work seriously anymore. And, you know, people take a day off to go shopping. Uh, there's the inevitable, which drives me crazy. The people you haven't heard from in 11 months all of a sudden must absolutely do lunch with you between now and Christmas because it's Christmas. Um, but there are a lot of excuses this week not to be paying any attention at work. And one of them would be that this morning uh, from 11 a.m. actually until 1 p.m. outside the Scotiabank Arena, they're going to be celebrating the Argonauts having won the Grey Cup. And I have no idea what kind of a show they're planning on putting on, but I guess there's probably going to be cheerleaders. Pinball Clemens will be there. Uh, a few of the very notable team members, I'm sure, will speak. Um, if, if we get our wish, actually, it's a little early in the morning, 11 o'clock for this to happen. But I remember at the celebration for the uh, Raptors winning, the, uh, some of the players were completely hammered. And it was actually quite charming. It's not always charming. But in that case, it was uh, it was charming. So that's going to be outside. It's going to be in Maple Leaf Square, and it starts at 11 o'clock this morning if you want to be there. If you don't want to be there, you can probably take it in. I'm pretty sure our friends at CP24 are probably going to be broadcasting the whole affair. So word this morning that the Ontario line is going to cost possibly double uh, what was projected. I don't know that – I mean, we'll find out on the roundtables. I think most of us are pretty – inured to this sort of thing because public projects take longer than scheduled and always cost more, which always makes me wonder why, and maybe this would turn into some sort of a creep, but why is it that we don't just double the projected cost in the first place and tell everybody it's going to take twice as long to do? I mean, if you take a look, uh, one of the principal examples, I think, would be the renovations at Union Station, which were supposed to be done by the Pan Am Games, which you have to kind of cast your mind back to 2015 is when we had the Pan Am Games. And we didn't finish that until 2022. Then you get to the uh, St. Clair right of way, a reconstruction of the streetcar tracks. That one is a little bit more understandable because they kept on running into things. First of all, Whenever people complain about how long it took to complete the crosstown, one of the issues was that people were suing to stop it. So they actually had to suspend construction for a period of time for a lawsuit that was ultimately going to fail. But then you got into issues of, oh, well, while we're at it, let's replace a whole bunch of hydro substations and tap boxes and other things like that. And then there was the usual overrun. And then you get to the Eglinton crosstown which was supposed to be complete. I'm sure all my friends at Metrolinx who are listening right now can remind me of the precise date. I think it was supposed to be operational in 2020. And I get it. We got hit with COVID and various other things. But here we are, it's 2022, and they signaled not long ago that it was not going to be finished by the end of this year. And I'm still waiting, I must say. Again, I know everybody at Metrolinx listens to this show. Um, I'd like to drive one of those trains, please. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, everybody knows what a gearhead I am, right? Like I'm, I'm a little wonkish about rail, streetcars, trains, 
Remember when, and I never took advantage of this, which makes me the ultimate fool. My sister used to be a mucky muck at um, Canadian Pacific. And they have one steam engine that still operates. And I said, one of these days, I want to I wanna drive that thing. And the problem was it was usually out west. And then as a cost-cutting measure, they warehoused it. So at the moment, it's not running. But maybe one of these days, because it's one of those grand old massive things that was probably built in a Montreal shed that, uh, you know, could power an entire freight um, you know, operation over the Rocky Mountains. It's a grand and magnificent affair. But enough of that. Back to the Ontario line. And it was originally projected in 2019, in gazetted documents, they said it was going to cost $10.9 billion. Now, I'm sure we all knew it was never going to cost $10.9 billion, but the latest projections based on some contracts that have been awarded are $17 billion to $19 billion. And I just know it's going to go to $25, right? So we'll see what our commentators have to say about that. Mark Tuohy is on the morning brief at 620, so he'll be the first person to weigh in. And then we have the roundtable at 745, another one at 845. But this is, we're looking now, I mean, it's a 15-kilometer affair. So it's over a billion dollars a kilometer. And now during a break, I'm going to have to go into the files and remind myself of what the projected costs of subways used to be. Because there's always been a cost of like, if you're going to build a streetcar line, it's going to be like $150 million or something like that per kilometer. If you're going to do uh, light rail, which is bigger than streetcar, sort of like what we're doing up on Eglinton, then that's, you know, a couple of hundred, I think, per kilometer. Uh, but a subway line at a billion dollars plus per kilometer seems a little precious. Now, I get it. It's going to be ours forever. It is going to be a permanent legacy. And I'm a huge booster, incidentally. I'm very happy that Doug Ford is so enthusiastic about the uh, Ontario line because I think it is going to significantly transform our transit matrix in this city. One of the important things about building a transit system is there has to be interlace. There has to be lines that cross each other. And so, for example, once the Eglinton Crosstown, which I'm still not actually sold on, but once the Crosstown comes in, then some people, instead of using the Bloor-Danforth subway line, are going to go up north and use that line. And once the Ontario line is in, then some people who are clogging up the Young line, especially, but also the University line, are going to find themselves on that one. And so that's going to take a lot of pressure out of the pipe. Now, we should be building three or four other subway lines, but, you know, we're not a very imaginative people. And we also, and I suppose there's some irony as I remind you of what this is going to cost of me saying this next thought, but we're cheap. Um, like, I don't want us to overpay for anything like the creation of the Ontario line, but we're incredibly cheap in this uh, city. It's one of the wealthiest cities in the world, and we're always shying away from bold infrastructure projects. Subscribe today and always hear the latest episode of The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Just to explain further from the five things you need to know what was happening at City Council yesterday, Josh Matlow decided to make a bit of a stink. He's a city councillor, one of 25, and he decided to call out John Tory for what he alleges was Tory's role in 
obtaining special powers. I'm going to have to go on a bit of a dive, and maybe I'll just have to ask Tory himself. But the allegation is that even though John Tory, okay, so the provincial government creates special powers for mayors in Toronto and Ottawa. Uh, then the candidates for mayor, one of them, the incumbent John Tory, the other one who was running to replace a retiring mayor in Ottawa, both of them said, don't worry, we're not going to use these powers. Uh, but you know, what Matt Lowe is saying is that John Tory actually requested them and that he intends to use them. And it's always going to be an interesting philosophical debate over whether or not a mayor should have those special powers. I know people always say, hey, the mayor is elected by all of the voters in the city, while each of the city councillors is only elected by the people in their ward. True. But in a system that kind of resembles the American congressional system, the idea is that each of those individual people who are elected are very strongly, or at least by majority, supported by the people who elected them in their ward or congressional district. Ergo, what you need to do is assemble a consensus amongst those people who represent very diverse. Okay, let's ignore the congressional model. But in Toronto, you know, yeah, you're the mayor, but you've got to appeal to somebody who was elected in Corktown and somebody who was elected in Etobicoke and somebody who was elected uh, up at Finch. And each of them have their own needs and each of them very passionately represents the individual needs of their ward. So whether or not a mayor should be able to bigfoot council, I think is a worthy debate. And just to stir the pot, uh, this morning at 8.35, Josh Matlow is going to be with us. I think we're entering a very interesting period in the political history of Toronto because John Tory is in his third mandate. He will become the longest serving mayor in the history of Toronto, but he's also out and done. Doesn't make him a lame duck by far, but it does mean that this is officially and for sure the end of the Tory era. And so everybody else is going to start jockeying for position. And sooner than later is my prediction that uh, people are going to have to stake their claim very early in this race for fear of losing their place as things gear up toward the next municipal election. So yesterday at the inquiry into the declaration of the Emergencies Act, a few people were testifying, including the Attorney General, David Lametti. And one of the interesting things, one of our pundits was observing this yesterday, a lot of the evidence that has been tabled at the inquiry shows the degree of informality that sometimes prevails in communications between individuals in government, between chiefs of police and various other people. So a bit of a splash was made yesterday with David Lametti's texts back and forth with other individuals, where, for example, he declared that he had no confidence in Peter Slowly. And I'm starting to feel, in spite of the fact that I thought he worked out to be a terrible police chief in Ottawa, I'm starting to feel sorry for him because as we approach the first anniversary of him saying, fine, I'm out, I'm resigning, people just continue to pile on. Uh, but here is David Lametti on the stand yesterday talking about anticipating fairly early on the worst case outcome of the convoy protests, but also the fact that the Ottawa police force seemed impotent when it came to trying to do something about it. Because the worst scenario would be something explodes and 
we are not ready to use it because we haven't done the, the, the kinds of consultations necessary. So I was frustrated, I have to admit. This is, this is a complete product of the heat of the moment. Meanwhile, Defense Minister Anita Anand was questioned at one point about whether or not any, at any time it was considered. Because in, in Lametti's um, text at one point, the, he was joking back and forth with another cabinet minister over bringing in the army. And then the other cabinet minister says, well, how many tanks do you think we need? And Lametti says, oh, probably just one. He says he was just kidding. Now, to the best of my knowledge, and I will seek to confirm this before we leave the airwaves at 9 a.m. this morning, I do not believe that the Canadian military constitutionally has the same issue as the American military because the American military is not allowed to intervene on domestic matters. Now, they can go in and, and you know, put uh, down sandbags, but they can't be called in as auxiliary police. I'm not sure if that same policy applies in Canada, but, you know, the only time we've ever sent the military officially in to behave like police officers was under the War Measures Act in 1970. But Anita Anand, the defense minister, uh, talked about how uh, even if somebody had considered sending in the military, that was a bad idea. The Canadian Armed Forces are the force of last resort. Our country's soldiers are not police officers. They are not trained in crowd control. They are not trained in protest management. Mark Tuohy is a former member of the Canadian Armed Forces, and fortuitously, he is on the morning brief this morning, so he's going to be able to offer all kinds of insight. And actually, like I said, I was going to try and confirm this before 9. We'll confirm it at 6.20 this morning. But I also thought of Mark yesterday when Anita Anand said, said those words, that Canadian soldiers are not trained in crowd control. I'm pretty sure that owing to a lot of our UN missions that we're pretty well trained in things like crowd control. But like I said, we'll find out at 6.20 this morning on The Morning Brief. That's The Breakfast Wrap. Thanks for listening. My name is John Moore. I hope we'll talk again soon. You've been listening to The Breakfast Wrap with John Moore. Don't forget to subscribe and get the latest episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And listen weekday mornings from 5 to 9 on News Talk 1010.